Hey everybody, my name is Jesse Collings, and I want to tell you all about my show, The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. On The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, we do a thorough analysis on the biggest issues and trends within the pro wrestling industry. We talk a lot about pro wrestling media, we talk a lot about fan culture and wrestling's place within general pop culture, and we talk about the broader influences that are shaping the way we discuss and analyze the pro wrestling industry. We've had some of the brightest minds in the pro wrestling intelligentsia on the show, including WrestleNomics host Brandon Thurston, both Rich Krejci and Joe Lanza from the Flagship Wrestling Podcast, Trevor Dame from the Through the Years Podcast, and a whole lot more. This isn't a show for hot takes. It's not a show recapping the latest episode of television. This is a show focusing on the biggest topics in pro wrestling and doing a deep dive on the real stories behind the surface level analysis you might find elsewhere. The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd really appreciate it if you gave us a try. Thanks. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hi guys, this is Editor Dan. Uh, Joel was a very special guest on the Voices of Wrestling's AEW podcast, The Good, The Bad and The Hungy, last night. Uh, he joined the co-hosts Tyler and Fred to give a full preview of Forbidden Door from both sides of the fandom. So enjoy that now, if you haven't already heard it. Yeah, listen, I just edit this show. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Enjoy. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a very special episode here today. Not only is it myself and Fred Moreland, but we have... Joining us from the Super J cast, Mr. Joel Abraham. And Joel, I'm going to start here because we got an interesting question from the Discord that I really want your opinion on. And it's from Evil Trident. Um, what is the most outlandish eight-man match New Japan and AW could put together that the people would want to turn off their TV? And I ask you this because I, I, I know that you will have an answer that will just put me on the floor laughing. Uh, well, the easy answer would be House of Torture versus House of Black. But I think House of Black are maybe a little bit, I, I sort of like them too much for them to be uh, instant turn off. So, um, also, AEW fans should be very used to, to interference at this point in time. <laughs> that's, that's very true. Well, uh, Joel, we are absolutely thrilled to have you on. How are things going for you? Um, I, I you are in Thailand, correct? Uh, that is correct for at least another month then moving back to the uk but yeah it is uh 9 p.m over here i've got two sleeping children next to me so this ideal uh, situation for recording podcasts but uh weirdly enough the sound of me talking about pro wrestling seems to soothe them to sleep so we're all good oh, you you hit a gold mine there joel that is that is phenomenal and we are we're really excited to talk to you about this interesting forbidden door card um, obviously we've, we've known the top two matches for some time and this past week on collision and dynamite, they've given us quite a bit more. Um, that one thing that I'm curious about is after last year, the build was really wonky and 
that wasn't necessarily the fault of Tony Khan and Gato. It was just everything bad decided to happen to them all at once. Um, how did you feel about this year's building compared to last year? Oh, it's way better. It's way more coherent. I mean, last year was a snake bit show for all the reasons that you've mentioned. Yeah, in spite of that, it was still a bloody fun show and I really enjoyed watching it in spite of myself because I looked at that card and to be honest, I was hand-waving it. I was like, this, this could be a disaster. But it wasn't, you know, the crowd was great. Everyone had the working boots on and it had just a, a brilliant energy to it. So I'm expecting and hoping for the same. And we have a way better build this year. There's some been some really good coherent storytelling between the two companies, which uh, has uh, surprised me, if I'm honest. Uh, so, yeah, I'm really excited for it. I think it's going to be a killer show. Fred, how about you? What what is, what is your take on the bill? I know we've had some some discussions on it here before. It's nice to have a, a bill that isn't ruined by external factors uh, for once. Uh, I mean, I say for once, like there's been more than two of these. Uh, but, you know, it's it's been nice to actually watch a car get built in a uh, meaningful way rather than just like on a weekly basis going, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. <laughs> Who got hurt this week? Uh, and uh, we only lost uh, what would have been a women's world championship match of uh, Mercedes Monet and probably Tony Storm, maybe Jamie Hayter if she wasn't injured. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm pretty excited. I've, I actually went right after the show last night and I went ahead and purchased it, uh, mainly because I do this show. But, you know, it's good to avoid the whole uh, BR Live can't handle more than 20 people trying to order at once deal. Um, yeah, I'm pretty excited. I'm looking forward to this, and uh, I would not be shocked if it's still the show of the year again. Yeah, this is this is shaping up to be a great show, and I I really liked um, what Joel said about the the build being more, more coherent mm-hmm. because I think that's that that's the perfect word for it. Everything just seems to be flowing nicely. They like Tony Khan loves his announcements, so they kind of slow rolled some of these matches and like. Two weeks ago, we had Sonata and Hiroshi Tanahashi making challenges. Jungle Boy accepted that. And then MJF obviously whined like MJF does. And then this week, we had more announcements. And then, spoiler, Rampage has an announcement for another match. And I like that slow roll to continue the momentum while continuing to build up those top two matches. I just, I think it's been really, really nice. Um, I know it's, I, I, I wonder, Joel, uh, from your perspective, how this is kind of viewed by uh, some of the New Japan fans out there, because New Japan is, I I don't know what the right phrasing is, so I'm going to phrase it like this. They're, they're notorious for just putting entire cards out there significant amount of time in advance, like whether it be like two, three, even like up to, up to like four weeks. Uh, how do New Japan fans feel about kind of like the slow roll, or do they just like to have everything right away? Or is it does it really not matter? I think the top two matches for this show are so strong that the rest of the on the card is immaterial, really. People, I think New Japan fans and AW fans are so excited by the prospect of Okada versus Danielson and Osprey versus Omega 2 that the strength of that alone means they could fill up the undercard with anything. Like the multi man tags were so good last year that. Even the New Japan fans are not hand-waving those. Like, they know they're going to be really fun. Uh, I mean, weirdly, the, the complaints that I have seen is that there's too many singles matches on this card. Uh, whereas, they would again, they would have been happy enough with those really two strong sort of main event and co-main event and some fun, wacky uh, 
multi-man tag matches, crossovers that you never thought you'd see before. So, uh, yeah, strangely enough, the only complaints I've heard are about things like uh, Punk versus Kojima and uh, Sonata versus Jungle Boy, where people weirdly, I think, would have rather have seen them in multi-man tag matches. That's fascinating. And, uh, you know, what? let's jump right into the card, Joel. And uh, let's start there. Uh, with what you just mentioned, and that is the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship match, Sonata versus Jungle Boy. I, I find this match fascinating for a lot of levels. One, because they're two of the best-looking wrestlers um, out there today, and you obviously have all the jokes about the handsome battle. But you look at Jungle Boy and you look at Sonata, and it, it's not always a one-to-one. Like, hey, you know, this guy's a junior and challenging for the the heavyweight title, but. Jungle Boy looks like a junior. He only weighs about 165 pounds. But obviously in America, he's presented in a different fashion. He isn't presented like he's a junior. He's presented like he's a standard heavyweight. Uh, How are you looking at this match in those terms? And then kind of in a much broader perspective, because it's, it's a match that could easily be anywhere from like three stars to four and a half, just with how these two individuals work. I think the match will be really good. I think both guys are going to be working very hard to impress people and prove that that was wrong. But unfortunately, it was just one of these things where we knew from the start that whoever Sonata was paired against, it, it was going to be uh, a match that on paper would have no interest to the AEW fans because they're not into Sonata and no interest to the New Japan fans because they were never going to give him an opponent that the New Japan fans would be into just because of all the politics involved. And I mean... I've said to, to Damon on the Jcast that Forbidden Door was never about giving Sonata a dream match. And it's not really about dream IWGP heavyweight title defences either. So I think it was quite smart for New Japan to move their world title away from people that they wanted the dream matches for and put it on Sonata. So it was immaterial, really, who he was going to be facing. Now... I can kind of understand where Jack Perry came from as a challenger. I know he's been challenging for the AEW world title fairly recently. He's not exactly a jobber or anything, but it was just really interesting to see Sonata's comments because he's leaning into these guys. So he said, uh, I quote, I have no knowledge of Jack Perry. It's sad to see someone like that challenge for the IWGP. Is it an open challenge really that easy to decide? It's the IWGP. I think it's worth more than the AEW championship. So I do like that from Sonata, that he is, you know, trying to make something out of this and uh, leaning into some of the comments that I've seen from New Japan fans. Because, like, personally, my only gripe was that the way the match, uh, the, the matchmaking played out on Dynamite, the fact that he threw out this open challenge and there was only one member of the AEW roster who expressed any interest in it. Like I said before, it would have been nice to have, I don't know, a qualifying match or a battle royal or at least, you know, two guys having an argument over it. You think Sonata saying, okay, I'm holding the top prize in New Japan, come and get it. And then just one dude going, yeah, okay, yeah, that sounds interesting. I'll give it a go. That was the only thing that I had a complaint about because it made the IWGP title look weak. But like I said before, it, it it's all politics. So I don't really have a problem with the match. It's not what I'm tuning into Forbidden Door to see. So the fact that he is getting a singles match and a, a title defense at that, I see that as a bonus, an unexpected bonus, because I thought we'd just get just five guys in uh, a tag match. Considering the state of the card, and uh, I'll we'll start with you, Joel, and then I want your opinion on this too, Fred. Uh, it looks like this IWGP title match is going to 
probably be fourth or fifth on the card and potentially third, depending on how uh, the politics get slotted with the AEW world title. Uh, do you see that as a, a, a detriment and like, for lack of a better term, a stain on the world title, because it is viewed with this such high prestige, but it being so low on the card. Obviously this is kind of a, a weird instance with it being like a super show, but it's very rare that you ever see the IWGP world championship defended below the top spot. I don't have a problem with that. I've not seen any complaints about it. I don't think, you know, even the most uh, hardcore New Japan fan would have been demanding for Sanada to be in the main event of Forbidden Door. Like I said, it, the Forbidden Door is not about getting a, a sexy Sanada match. Um, ironic, really, considering both of the handsome chaps who are going to be contesting it. But no, I think it's fine. Everyone's tuning in because they want those two dream matches at the top. So uh, zero complaints about wherever it's put. If it's third, fourth, I don't care. I just want to see the cool matches at the top of the card. Fred, how about you? Uh, you know, I, I agree with Joel uh, in terms of I think that they could have done this in a way that would have made the IWGP heavyweight title uh, more prestigious. Uh, it did feel very much like uh, Jack Perry just happened to be hanging out backstage. It was like, oh, what the hell? <laughs> Rather than it being like a really desirable title, which it should be presented as. Um, but uh, ignoring that, and, you know, it's such a trope in American wrestling that there'll be an open challenge. And then, oh, surprise, just one guy comes out, even though it's, you know, every like lower card guy on the show should be clamoring for the opportunity. But, you know, I think it, you know, I think it's exactly where it's going to be this year. I think in a future year, if Okada comes into the um, comes into the show, the Forbidden Door three as the champ, it'll be placed much higher on the card. Uh, but you know, in terms of like the reality of Sonata as the world champ right now, and uh, the fact that he's not particularly super over in the states, um, I mean, I would, I actually think like Ishii and Suzuki would be more over. Um, and will be more over on the show than Sonata. Um, but, you know, if you ignore all that, like, it's it's exactly where it probably should be. Um, it's, you know, it could even open the show, I reckon, uh, just to give a kind of a featured slot. But it'll be uh, like a 20-minute match tops, and, you know, it'll be pretty darn good. So That's kind of where I am, too. I, I like that Jungle Boy was the one who accepted the open challenge. Obviously, they're... They're sexier opponents. They're better opponents than Jungle Boy. But his story this year being that he's trying so hard to win a singles title of some form. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's already gone for the TNT. He's already gone for, I believe he went for the international um, early in the Orange Cassidy reign. And then he just went for the uh, world heavyweight title. Uh, going for the IWGP makes sense within the context of what his story is this year. And I, I like that continuity. I mean, he's he's not going to win. The, the only way that he'd win is if Tanahashi were to beat MJF. And I, I don't see those two things happening. Yeah. I think, and, and frankly, Perry losing here is going to be an important part of the story. Mm-hmm. They're and then, him, I think I agree completely. I, I think it'd be awesome to have Tanahashi with a, a run with the AW world title, but jungle boys and IWGP champion makes absolutely zero sense. So you can't even have that kind of like trade off. You'd, you'd have to have somebody much bigger, like, if Moxley was challenging for the IWGP, then maybe you can make a switch like that. But that's never going to happen. That's kind of all happenstance. And um, I, 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 I find that interesting. And 
Um, Joel brings up a good point in, in our chat uh, that Sonata is barely promoted for the NJPW Strong US events. And yeah, I think it was the last Capital Collision. He was like fourth from the top in a tag match. Like that's that, that's a really good point. And I I know he's much more over with the Japanese fans than he is with the Western fans, but that's that's a significant drop off, especially as uh, New Japan is trying to be more consistent about running shows in America. I think there's like a tacit admission there, acknowledgement by New Japan that there is a disconnect between the way Sonata is perceived in Japan and perceived in the States. So, uh, like I said, I, I don't think there's any complaints either side. I think it is what it is with Sonata at this point. He's got his fans. Um, I think he's probably doing a little better than people are giving him credit for, but nobody is demanding for him to be at the top of all the, the stuff that they do stateside. It's just not realistic. That does bring me to a question I want to ask you, Joel, because uh, uh, one thing that I know uh, Joe Lanza really you know, believes in is that uh, Sonata is a flop as the world champion for New Japan right now, uh, that he's not getting over. And I did just watch, uh, like before we went on air, I just finished his defense against uh, Yoda Suji, um, and the crowd was 100% behind Suji in that match, so... Uh, do you do you think Sonata is succeeding as the world champion for New Japan, uh, or do you think that there's still kind of a struggle to establish him as a uh, as a top of the card guy? He's just been positioned in an interesting way, in as much as like when he was the challenger, I think the fans are really into him. The run that he had in the New Japan Cup, like you watch the final he had against Finlay, or you watch the the title challenge against Okada, the fans were behind him. They were making noise for him. But the defences he's had have been against Hiromu, who is like this ultra-popular, like transcendental uh, junior star that everyone loves. And Yota Suji, who is this incredibly exciting and dynamic uh, young lion making his comeback and is already exuding star power. So I think those are are mitigating circumstances. I I wouldn't call him a flop. But again, I acknowledge that the crowd are not in as into him as they are with guys, you know, at the very top of the card, you know, your Okadas or your Naitos or your Hiromus. That's a fact, you know, no mm-hmm. one's out here saying that he's getting mega star reactions, but I think it's been overblown. I think the numbers he's doing are fine. I mean, they sold out Dontaku. I thought that it's really hard to judge the crowd numbers just because post pandemic, you know, there's still a lot of reluctance from Japanese people to go to live events in general. So I don't think it's fair to compare the numbers now to how they were pre-pandemic. It's just a completely different landscape. So I don't think he's a flop, but I also acknowledge that he is nowhere near as popular as the upper echelons of of stars in the company. It's an experiment. You know, they're using him as a a transitional champion, giving him the rub. I don't think he's going to be holding the... He's not going to be doing like an Okada mega reign with it. He's not going to be breaking any title defense records, but um, it's going to give him a bit of shine. And give uh, just five guys a bit of shine. So if that is the, the mission statement for this Sonata title run, I think it's it's doing what it's was set out to do from the start. Yeah, I agree. And I think Sonata's been actually really good this year. I think I have him in my top 15 in my wrestler of the year tracker I, I'm doing because I'm a giant nerd. But like every match he's had has been at least four and a quarter stars uh, that I've gone out of my way to watch. But I am a New Japan filthy casual. Uh, so like, I'm not as into it as you are. You know, I try to keep up with it. I haven't watched any of the best of the super junior, but I am almost done with dominion at this point. 
Um, I'm very timely. Uh, but yeah, I do think it's very interesting the way New Japan's booked him because it feels like they've almost done a disservice to him. Like they gave, gave him the belt to try to, uh, you know, try to help establish him as a top star, kind of like they did with Evil a couple years ago. But then they immediately book him against two guys that were pretty obviously going to be like uh, strong underdog uh contenders against him that the crowd will get behind I, I i would have thought it was obvious that both hiromu and uh suji would have been uh favorites and you know I, i'm surprised they leaned into that that they booked those two matches and uh i feel like it maybe it hamstrung sonata a little bit I, I don't know what the long-term effects will be if any but it's just very interesting to me yeah i mean you can extend that to see the booking for the g1 block that he's in because like he's been given this interesting spot where he's been paired up against a lot of these young up-and-comers and he's like the, the veteran hand who's got to guide them through the matches. So you look at that block and you see he's going to be facing Suji again, uh, guys like Kiyomiya, uh, Ren Narita, Shota Umino, even people like Gay Kid. You know, the, these are the young, hungry up-and-comers that, again, I think the crowds are going to be hungry for the upsets there. So yet again, in this block, uh, Sonata's going to have his back to the wall. So... I don't think it's an accident. I think there's an intentionality to the way he's being booked. It's very interesting to me. Uh, just uh, I, I wouldn't do it that way, but hey, uh, it's an interesting move. At 100% is. Joel, before we move on, I, 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 there's a question I've wanted to ask you because I know you. I am, I am also a big Crisp fan. If you had to relate Sonata to a flavor of Crisp, uh, <laughs> what would what would you do? Um, <laughs> probably ready salted. You know, he's a he's a safe pick. Um, people who say that that's their favorite are probably a bit boring and not to be trusted. Um, but I, I would never turn down. There's a bowl of ready salted crisp there. I'll, I'll have a few, sure, but I'm never going to lie and say it's my favorite. Hey, there's nothing wrong with a good salty crisp. I would completely agree. Let's let's continue on. Uh, let's briefly mention the one pre-show match here, and then I want to kind of get into a little bit of a hypothetical. We have uh, the Owen Hart Memorial Tournament starting at for um, it's actually starting on Rampage Friday mm-hmm. night with uh, Anna JAS versus Sky Blue, um, and then the pre-show Billy Starks versus Athena, which is a very interesting match in itself that we don't have to get really too far into. I don't think we've seen Billy Starks wrestle in AEW yet. Um, yeah, we did a couple dark matches. Uh, ooh, was is that, that a dark rampage? match? Uh, I think she was on a rampage I was at, but no, I guess I'm mistaken, so never mind me. Well, I mean, it, she could have just been wrestling on dark, but yeah. that is the one pre-show match, and um, I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what, what else is added to this pre-show, because um, I believe LIJ is coming in. We know uh, Dookie getting the singles rub against Jungle Boy on rampage, and according to uh, Lucha Blog, friend of the site, he got a, a much, much bigger reaction and crowd connection than Jungle Boy did, which rules so much. I love Dookie. Um, uh, I'm curious, uh, like, what you guys might think who is going to be on this pre-show, because you'd have to assume that LIJ is probably on here in some, some way, shape, or form because it's LIJ. The lack of Bullet Club inclusion is very interesting, considering their popularity in the States as a whole, but Last year, there were four pre-show matches, and I'm curious what else might be added here, and I wondered if you guys had any thoughts on that. My big fear is that it's going to be like the last two pre-shows, which have been 
like dollar store WWE versions where you get one match and then like 40 minutes of meaningless bullshit from uh, like a panel of tall Paul and uh, you know, uh, Stokely Hathaway and you know, just like nothing. Um, Cause I, I guess it wasn't forbidden door last year. I mean, though I liked the forbidden door free show last year, but you know, last year we got a, uh, what was it? Kingston and Ishii, I think, on one of the pre-shows, which was a five-star match for me. And then this year, we're like, hey, do you like the guns? And it's just like, what are we doing, man? I don't... If, if this, like I said on the, the last uh, pay-per-view recap, if this is uh, shown to actually work better than the, the good pre-shows, then capitalism has failed. Yeah, c- capitalism has failed. That 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 that's gonna be the uh, that's gonna be the title of a show one of these days, Fred. Joel, um, obviously, it thing uh, this uh, pre-show is gonna be interesting. I I'm gonna push back a little bit, Fred. I don't think it's gonna be a WWE style pre-show. I hope not. Not only well, you're catering to um, also the Japanese fan base, and that that's not kind of the style. Um, like it's match, match, match. It's much more of a sports format, and I think. Um, having 40 minutes of a pre-show is not going to convince like a talking. I mean, it's not going to convince anybody who's a really big fan of, of that promotion to want to buy tickets or sorry, buy the pay-per-view. Um, Joel, do you have any thoughts on who might be added to this pre-show? And I really want your thoughts on this uh, lack of bullet club inclusion. That's a weird one, because I guess if you have the bullet club on there, then there's a bit of an elephant in the room with the, black and gold bullet club or whatever they're calling themselves these days and you know that sort of sticks out like a sore thumb the fact that there's nothing for jay white on this card because you think that given his history and everything the the way the acrimonious way in kayfabe you know he was booted out of new japan that he would figure quite prominently into a a forbidden door event but there's nothing there i mean i think it would be cool to have maybe on the pre-show or the undercards some sort of multi-man where you know we get Finlay and Connors and Dan Maloney and, and Gay Kid and now it's Coglin uh, against, I don't know, some equivalent team. It's like an AEW team of jobbers that they can beat because I don't think New Japan would want their Bullet Club taking a loss. So I don't know if there's a, a group of AEW guys that they could get a win over. I don't think there's anything announced for Bishamon yet. So maybe Goto and Yoshihashi could make an appearance at some point. Um, I could see uh, a multi-man team, like just five guys team of like Kanemaru and Doki or whoever. They they could probably be staring at the lights for someone. So, um, yeah, there's there's a few options out there. Yeah, the, this uh, this pre-show is, I, I really don't think it's over because uh, Athena versus Billy Starks does not scream, hey, let's buy this pay-per-view to me. Um, let's let's continue on. We have a lot, lot to talk about here with this show. Um, this is this one's interesting, and we we had a little bit of forward here. We're gonna get Jer- Chris Jericho and Sting in the ring wrestling each other for the first time ever. Which, considering all their crossover, and I use air quotes there um, on WCW, uh, they've never faced off in the ring, which is fascinating to me. Chris Jericho, Sammy Guevara, and Minoru Suzuki, who that. This hired gun thing by uh, Jericho and Suzuki, it just feels like they're they're just pals having a blast. It, I love watching those two wrestle together in the ring versus Sting, Darby Allen, and a mystery opponent. And I, I think the the conductive reasoning has decided that it's going to be Tetsuya Naito, especially with uh, Sting saying like it's uh, an enemy of his that he's made in New Japan. 
uh, in the promo this week on Dynamite. This match, especially with what we saw from last year in the trios match with the the Young Bucks and El Phantasmo, like this could end up being a lot of fun. And I, I'm I'm very excited. But if it's not Naito, who could it be? That and I think that's that's another interesting discussion because of the lack of LIJ inclusion just as a whole on the show so far. Um, Joel, what are your what are your thoughts here on this match, and how excited are you to see Sting in a ring again? Yeah, these are the kind of matches that I'm here for for Forbidden Door. The one that you mentioned last year, what was it? Darby Allen, Sting, and Shingo against ELP and the Bucks. That was great, yeah. and no one was circling that one, thinking, "Oh, yeah, this is this is going to be a killer match." But it was, it was just so much fun, and all those neat little interactions that you never thought you'd see. Um, I mean, in terms of the mystery partner, I'm 99% sure it is Naito, so I wouldn't sort of go overthinking that one. Uh, Shingo was tweeting about it, but yeah, I think Naito's the play. He's got history with Suzuki. He's got history with Jericho. So uh, hopefully that will be a, a, a cool pop when he gets uh, announced for that one. And yeah, it should be a really fun match. Like this is, I think, the spirit of Forbidden Door where you get these kind of mishmash teams, not necessarily a New Japan team against an AEW team, but when you're, you're mixing them up and you've got your good guys on one side, your bad guys on the other, that's that's what everyone's here for. It's a, it's a fun time. Yeah, I, I, I'm really intrigued. If Naito ends up on this team, does Naito paint his face? And I think it, to me that that's that's the fun element that I'm waiting to see. There's no way, right? Like, you, you know, he's too tranquilo to do that, right? You would think, but who knows, man? It, it's Sting has some magical powers, and I, I, I don't mean that in reality. It's it's just Sting. He's got an aura. I did pop for uh, Brian Cage uh, being face-painted, despite being against Sting in a match. Like, what was it, last week or the week before? Uh, that... Uh, I, I just, uh, I love that Brian Cage could not control his markedness for Sting to the point that he was like, well, I'm going to try to beat him up, but I'm also going to do the face paint because he rules. Yeah. One, one last thing here, Joel, do you think there's any chance that he does the face paint or am I just trying to fantasy book myself to oblivion? I can't see it. It would seem um, antithetical to the, the, the spirit of Naito where most of the time he doesn't give a fuck. So I think... We'll be lucky if he takes his T-shirt off. So don't hold your breath and face paint. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. Let's let's continue on. That that's probably going to be uh, that's a contender for match of the night outside of the top two because I think those two are going to be so unworldly that it, it's going to be hard to compare anything else on the card to them. Um, the ten man tag you have the Blackpool Combat Club with. Kanosuke Takeshita and Shooter versus the Hung Bucks, Eddie Kingston and Tomohiro Ishii. And this was set up really nicely on Dynamite this past week. A little disjointed. Eddie Kingston basically saying, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And But then he goes and says that he doesn't respect the elite and it's just a, a weird fit. And then Ishii gets his appearance on these shows and the United States fans love Tomohiro Ishii. And it it's going to be interesting how the dynamics of this whole match work because you have the dynamics with Kingston and John Moxley, Kingston and Claudio Castagnoli. Ishii's got history with John Moxley, and then Shooter 
is on the heel team and he's going to uh, be dressed up like a, a Hiroshi Tanahashi cosplay. So how, how the dynamics of this match really shape out are fascinating to me. Um, Fred, I'll start with you uh, here. How do you think this match goes down? And I'm guessing that this is probably going to set up some form of blood and guts. Yeah, I would imagine. Uh, I think it's going to be a big old uh, cluster um, intentionally and in a good way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't think this is exactly going to be, uh, you know, clean wrestling. I think there's going to be a lot of brawling, a lot of chaos. Um, I, I think that the Kingston setting up the match being disjointed is just what you get when it's Kingston. Um, I, I would not have been uh, shocked at all if he came out and said, hey, yo, I'm going to do me. And you know who else does them? Master Watto. You know, or just, you know, someone, something like Doki. Uh, it's just entirely within the realm for Kingston. But, you know, his entire kayfabe motivation is just hating Claudio Castanoli uh, a whole lot. Like, way too much. And, um, you know, he, he sees an opportunity to fight Claudio. And so he will be here to fight Claudio. Um, I, I did think that it was uh, kind of... I would have liked to have seen Ishii uh, get a little shine after he was announced instead of immediately being mauled to death by BCC. It would have been nice to like have Yuta bump around for him a little bit and then have Danielson sneak in and take out his knee or something like that. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think this match will rock. Uh, it'll probably be a, a big vibes match, not because of a lack of talent in the ring, because the ring is absolutely packed, but... I think that this is going to be a really heated match. Uh, you got Takeshita, you got um, Don Callis, the greatest heel in history as of right now. Um, I don't know. This this looks very intriguing to me. It looks very exciting. Joel, how are you feeling about this? This is a, a it's got a decent amount of crossover with New Japan, but this is obviously continuing the elite versus the Blackpool Combat Club story. Um, one, my main thought here is I kind of want your opinion on Shooter. Because he's he's a very interesting character, especially with his um, interactions with John Moxley. Because it's almost like he's that he's like the whole wrestler cosplay, where he's just playing pro wrestler, and it, I think it really shows up in a lot of these moments. But it also kind of exposes another element for him, where he becomes a like a little bit of a badass, where he shows a little bit more fire when he's with Moxley. Um, what are your overall thoughts on kind of how this will play out? I think AW are really good at laying out these multi-man matches. So I'm expecting this one to be a lot of fun. And they're usually structured in a way where it's sort of built to give shine to one or two particular wrestlers. Like it's not going to be every single wrestler gets the exact same amount of time. So I'm curious as to like last year, the match that Shota was in, that was, again, structured really well to give him the spotlight and give him some shine. So I'm curious to see whether they do that again or if it's going to be someone else like Takeshita. I don't know who else it could be. I'm looking like maybe Wheeler Yuta. Like, presumably, you want to use this as a vehicle to give some shine to one of the younger guys in the match. So it could be Shooter again. But I think he Shooter is at his best when he's got his back to the wall and he's basically getting the shit kicked out of him by someone else. And I think he's really started to shine as he's been embroiled in this kind of cold feud with uh, Okada. I say cold in as much as they haven't faced each other in a singles match and they're not in the same G1 block, but there is something there. You know, this is Okada's whole vibe of just um, kicking the shit out of all the, the Zoomers that he doesn't like. So 
I would like to see more of this in this match. I want to see Show to get a bit of a kicking and he just needs a, a few rough edges to take away the, the sort of soft pretty boy image that he's got at the moment. Like, you know, he's out there tweeting pictures of himself with coffee spilled down his shirt saying, oh, look, I spilled coffee on my shirt. Come on, mate. What are you doing? Like, is that something? Is that the sort of thing Antonio Noki would tweet? You know, if he was still alive today. So he, I don't know. I would just, I would love him to take himself a bit more seriously. And ideally, what I would want is John Moxley to turn on him and tear that stupid jacket into several pieces and shove him up his ass, basically. And yeah, just kick his head in a bit. I think that would do Shooter a lot of good, but I don't necessarily think that's going to happen in this match. But um, that is my one fantasy booking hope for 2023, that we get Moxley turning on Shota. Oh, that that would lead to some really, really fun matches. And I, I would love to see how Moxley could really get more out of Shota because there there is something there. And this whole shooter and roughneck persona where he's almost like trying to trying to cross the two. He's, he's that kid in high school who wants to be emo, but is wearing Abercrombie and Fitch and uh, is the star quarterback of the football team. Like that, the two things just really don't work together unless you're just this next level pantheon of special wrestler. And I, I would really love to see Moxley just beat the ever living crap out of him. I think that'd be it. That would make for a lot of fun storyline in uh, in Japan, and then you can obviously bring a show to over here a time or two to continue that story, and that it that could be a really fun cross promotional thing, especially um, after we potentially get that uh, singles match with uh, Okada, which I I'm guessing might happen at the Dome. Maybe I'm overthinking myself a little bit, but that I think that is something that I would be very very interested in. Yeah, if not that, you know, maybe even a, a G1 quarterfinal or semifinal. I'd have to look at the blocks again to see if that's a possibility. But uh, no smoke without fire. It does look like it's something they're building to in the long term, if not within this calendar year. I do think that it, you would be able to get them in the semifinal because you you have uh, the possibility of Okada Kiyomiya in the semis. Therefore, you would also have the potential of uh, Shota and Okada in the semis. And then you could also, you could do Okada Kiyomiya and then Okada Shota in the finals if you really wanted to be ballsy. But that would be, that was probably a little bit too early for Shota. There's, there's definitely the ability to make some stuff happen. Um, so uh, I'm fascinated to see where this goes. Any other th- thoughts on uh, this 10 man tag before we move on here, gentlemen? Not particularly. I'm just looking forward to it. Yeah, this this looks like it could, it could be a lot of fun. Another match that wasn't one that we necessarily thought of being fun, but it looks like it could be a lot of fun, and that is um, the Cookie Monster himself, CM Punk versus Satoshi Kojima, which also is a first-round match in the Owen Hart Tournament, um, which will kick off at Forbidden Door and then will uh, continue on the following Thursday on the collision taping in Hamilton, Ontario with the rest of the first round matches. Now the hope was that we were going to get the battle of the go to sleep with Kenta. That didn't happen for a myriad of reasons and which we could go on and on about, but look at the end of the day, it's not happening. We can just move on, but Kojima, 
whenever he's put in a singles match, he always works hard. It's always fun. He's going to lariat the hell out of CM Punk at some point. Then he's going to take the pin. It's going to be a really fun match, and I'm very excited for it. Um, Joel, uh, how excited are you for another Satoshi Kojima match? Uh, I'm not going to lie. Like When I was told yesterday, because uh, let's throw some flowers at me. I had the exclusive there uh, about the, the change of the match. Um, I just burst out laughing. I could not believe that they they pulled the plug on the Punk versus Kenta match because that was the one that made all the sense in the world. But uh, I'm not going to incur the wrath of uh, of either camp by <laughs> sharing what I heard or who was responsible for that because, uh, you know, there's different parties out there leaking their side of the story. You know, you ask Fight for and they're saying that uh, Kenta pulled out. Uh, you're asking Dave Meltzer or all the people I talk to, they're saying that it was uh, Punk who, who pulled creative control on that. Um, but either way, I actually think that the Kojima replacement is an upgrade for in-ring quality, if not a downgrade for the story. Because as much as it pains me to say it, I think Kent has cooked at this point. All his matches that he's having at the moment are very heavy on the shenanigans. Uh, he's a guy who I thought was borderline for the G1. He's winning a lot of his matches by you know, low blows and all the, the kind of nonsense that you'd expect to see in a House of Torture match. So I think in terms of in-ring quality, Kojima is probably a bit of an upgrade. Uh, and as you said, it would be fun. You know, there's a, a bit of the history there. There's that uh, punk video that's doing the rounds from back in the ROH days, that interview he's, he's doing with, um, he's got Samoa Joe sitting next to him and, and referencing the Kojima, Lariat, Lariat, Lariat. So uh, should be a lot of fun. Um, just, Hopefully uh, the uh, the lariats don't cause um, Phil any injuries. You know, just keeping my fingers crossed that he stays nice and healthy for whatever they've got planned for him at Wembley. Uh, so yeah, I would say this is going to be a match that's not going to be too uh, physically uh, taxing for for Punk. Um, I think they're just going to play it safe, uh, get through all the the greatest hits, all the your favourite spots, and uh, end with Kojima staring at the lights. Should be a nice little three and a half star affair. I'm wondering if this might open the show. And I, I know we we uh, talked about as uh, Odie is very excited about uh, Kojima versus CM Punk as he's just barking at the mic right now. But I, I'm very interested to see if this match opens the show because you, you get the pop of Punk and Kojima can still go. You give them 10 minutes, let them have fun get the crowd really excited with uh, Kojima because everybody loves a nice little lariat and bread club is wonderful as long as you aren't celiac. And I, I think this could be a really good way to open the show, but what fascinates me is overall how they're going to structure out this card, because I don't think you can finish. I mean, you could, but I don't know if they're going to finish the card with Osprey Omega and Okada Danielson one, two, I feel like they're going to have something in the middle to kind of, let let fans breathe a little bit because that would just be an hour and a half of holy shit. All right, perfect. Well, let's. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, I was I was trying to lay out there. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I think it'll be a nice little fun match. Yeah, I think so too. Um, Joel, anything more to add before we move on here? <sighs> Uh, no, I like the idea of it as being an opener. Uh, I think that'll be a good spot for it. Um, but in terms of the structure for the rest of the cards, uh, I, I will save my thoughts on what I think is going to happen for Omega Osprey. Um, uh, but yeah, let's move on. 
Perfect. Now, next up, uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll touch on this really quick because this this is somewhat in the realm of um, New Japan, but it's also not. And that would be um, the AW Women's World Championship match, Tony Storm versus Willow Nightingale. And as uh, mentioned earlier, uh, this likely was going to be um, that's Mercedes Monet in this spot instead of Willow Nightingale, but obviously she ha- uh, had the broken ankle. Uh, against Willow in the inaugural strong women's world title match. And this has kind of been building up a little bit on AEW television. I think this could be really good. Um, you have the the snarmy heel Tony Storm and Willow Nightingale, just the bubbly baby face, but they both are strong fighters. And I think this could be a really, really fun matchup. Um Obviously, disappointment with no Monet on the show. But uh, Joel, uh, do you have any thoughts here with Tony Storm and Willow Nightingale? Yeah, it's a really good match on paper. I, I really like what I saw from Willow Nightingale at the last Strong Show. Uh, obviously, the plan was not for her to be the the strong women's champion initially, and they called an audible with that. But uh, perfectly serviceable person to be holding the belt in the interim. It's just um, an interesting spot they find themselves in in terms of the, the booking for that title because if I uh, if I'm not mistaken Willow's title is not on the line um so correct would that necessarily mean then that if she loses that she's forced to defend that at some point or maybe just no one gives a shit like it would be the first time that New Japan create a brand new singles title uh plonk it on someone who works for a different promotion and then we don't see it again for six months so um not going to be losing sleep over that one but uh yeah probably the most interesting and high quality match they could have put on that would satisfy well vaguely satisfy the criteria of uh, some sort of cross promotional factors yeah I, I, i'm with you on the cross promotional factor i'm what really fascinated with me me here is why the strong title was not put on the line and it's only tony storm's title is and i Obviously, I don't think you can have Willow Nightingale win here. I just with the context of what the story is with Tony Storm and then the potential of her versus Jamie Hayter um at all in at Wembley. Uh but it it, it just feels odd that the the one title is um uh, only of it um up for grabs, especially because like last year you had uh, a match with multiple titles up up for grabs with the the tag team titles. Um which I find very interesting. Neither tag team champions as of right now are booked on the show. Um, it's, it, it, it's peculiar to me, but at the same time, I don't really think it's a big deal. Um, any they thoughts? Forgot, they forgot the title existed at one point, you know, in, in eight months, Willow Nightingale is going to find that uh, championship belt down the back of her sofa collecting dust and be like, Oh yeah, I remember that. So that uh, yeah, I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't overthink that too much. All right. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's entirely because they don't want uh, Tony to have the title, and they uh, don't want her to lose to Willow. So this is a just a compromise match. There we go. Uh, file under shit happens. Uh, speaking of filing under shit happens, what a what an interesting way to get here. We have a four way match with three champions, but only one title's on the line. If the AEW International title is Orange Cassidy defends against the three men. That he competed with on Wednesday night's Dynamite um, in a tag team match. And that would be his partner, Katsuyori Shibata, and then his opponents, Zack Sabre Jr. and Daniel Garcia. I'm a little disappointed that this is a four-way match that you don't get 
Shabbat, or uh, you, you don't get Zach Saber Jr. versus Orange Cassidy one on one. But if there's one thing that I've noticed with Orange Cassidy matches, they always deliver no matter what you put in front of him, just because he he's able to make it work with just about everyone. And the styles of these four individuals, I think, could match very very well. You have the submission element. You have just the pure striking. You have that Orange Cassidy with the, he has a lot of really nice counters, especially with like the, those tornado DDTs. He's got the, the Superman punch, the Orange Punch, I guess you could say. This this could be a lot of fun. Disappointing, it's not a one on one, but at the same time, AEW is shown to really deliver with a lot of these multi man matches. So it this could be this is very fun. Joel, when you take a look at this. Um, Two questions for you. One, are you a little bit surprised that Katsuyori Shibata is wrestling in a in a standard wrestling match on a New Japan show? And where where do you see this going as far as a um, a finish? Like, because it, could they potentially have Orange Cassidy lose here? And I think those are the two real intriguing things for me. I don't think so. I think we were discussing this on the Slack yesterday that it felt in doing an OC versus ZSJ singles match, they sort of put themselves into a corner. Uh, again, similar situations we talked about before with Orange Cassidy holding a singles title and Zach holding a singles title. So this is, you know, a bit of a cop out to, to have the four way. I think it's not going to shock anyone if Daniel Garcia is there to, to take the pin from Orange Cassidy. Um, but, you know, that said, as much as I was looking forward to the potential one-on-one match between Cassidy and Zach. Um, and, and I should say that Cassidy really won me over last year. When the Osprey versus OC match was announced, I think a lot of New Japan fans, myself included, were like, what the fuck? And uh, very dismissive of it, but it was a really, really fun match. So I'm going into it a lot more open-minded. I think it's going to be a ton of fun. As you say, these, these multi-man matches and the multi-way matches are usually executed very well. And we don't get to see those sorts of matches all the time in New Japan. So I like the variety. I like that we're going to get something a bit different outside of the usual New Japan house style. Um, so, yeah, I'm imagining OC wins and pins Daniel Garcia. How strange is it to see Shibata? I mean, every time he comes out on an AEW show and they've got the New Japan logo with him, I think, come on, come on, really? Are we still calling him a New Japan wrestler at this point? Um, I mean, who knows what the fuck is going on there? It, it makes me sad and it's really confusing We'd all love to see him wrestling back in Japan. I don't know if it's an insurance issue or what, but I'm not going to relitigate that for the millionth time. I'm just uh, grateful that we're going to see him do some wrestling. Yeah, this match, uh, I, I think it'll be better than probably should be. Um, and uh, it, it should be fun. Uh, it's a nice little way to get a couple more people on the card. Uh, like Daniel Garcia, who I think otherwise would have been squeezed out. But, you know, we got to keep uh, the the get young people over title on Zack Sabre Jr. to, you know, continue New Japan's attempts to get young people over. Uh, never mind his actual age. And, uh, yeah, um, it should be a fun time. I think uh, this is a very intriguing match. I wonder if they actually... Um if they actually take the belt off of orange Cassidy here, cause I, I don't think they're going to give it to Zack Sabre jr. They could give it to Shibata and he could be a double champion for a little bit, but I don't see that either. But to me, it feels like if they're going to do anything, it would be Daniel Garcia, but 
at the end, I don't of the think day, it's going to be this match. It I, doesn't feel right. I don't think it will be either, but I I still have an element of doubt, and that element of doubt is what's really fascinating here for me. And um, I'm I'm excited to watch it because this is going to be a lot of fun. We had a couple multi man matches last year that, and as Joel alluded to, like that they delivered, and I think this one is going to deliver here as well. But I think oh, we should really get to the the meat of the card here, and let's start off here. AEW world title MJF versus Hiroshi Tanahashi and MJF calling new Japan a rinky dink indie fed in Japan was one of the most perfect lines I've ever heard come out of MJF because he has no reverence or respect for his character does for anything um, in overseas in Japan. Uh, He is, he's a snarmy territory guy who, who would just is obsessed with like mid South and um, mid Atlantic and all all the old school territories like Jim Crockett promotions and Tanahashi obviously being the standard bearer for new Japan. And he has been for a, a good, like a good 20 years. Um, I think this is kind of the, the perfect match. And to me, I, I, I don't see Hiroshi Tanahashi winning, but because it's Tanahashi, you have that little shred of doubt in the back of your head that maybe they'll pull the trigger here. And it, he, he, Still, even with his broken down body, I mean, it's G1 season, let's be honest, who knows how really broken down it is. We'll find out in a few weeks. You just, it feels like anything could happen. And Joel, this feels like the perfect challenger for MJF for a multitude of reasons. And uh, I'm I'm curious your thoughts here because this, I think this match is going to be structured in a very interesting way that's going to, make itself completely different from the rest of the card. Yeah, I mean, I predicted that we were going to get this match a few months ago. And that's, you know, not a, a Nostradamus-like take from me. I think a lot of people did because Tanahashi is just that very easy pick for a guy who is a big name, is a big star. He can put on a good match, for now at least, uh, and can easily take a loss without suffering as a result of that. So, yeah, it makes complete sense. It makes sense for the story. He's the New Japan stalwart who's defended the pride of the company in the face of uh, the, the arrogant and, and dismissive heel. So I disagree with you. I don't think there's any chance of Tanahashi winning this. I, If they get me to bite on any of their near falls, they will have done a, a, a terrific job because I think it's an absolute formality that MGF wins this. Uh, but I just I hope that we get a spot somewhere in the match where Tanahashi gives MGF a good hard slap and knock the, the taste out of his mouth for saying all those terrible things about New Japan. Um, I do have my worries about Tanahashi. He does look like he's noticeably slowing down and starting to move into dad territory. So uh, hopefully they don't try to do anything too ambitious here. They keep it simple. And they just play to the, the dynamics and the story and the characters rather than uh, trying to do anything too intricate because... Uh, with G1 right around the corner, I will be a shit in bricks if uh, anything happens there. So, uh, yeah, I think this is a, an easy MJF win. I'll say this. I don't necessarily think Tanahashi's going to win. I think you're right. It's a formality that MJF is going to, but just the sheer presence of Tanahashi, at least for me, will put a little bit of a shred of doubt that it could potentially go the way of the ace but yeah the, it, it does seem like a formality especially with um as i mentioned earlier like the 
Jungle Boy is not winning the uh, IWGP title. Uh, there, that's a negative percent chance that that's happening. So I think it's probably the same for Tanahashi, but just his presence in there at, will keep a shred of doubt in my head. Fred, where are you at with this? Fred, you're muted. Yeah, muted. What am, what am I doing here? Uh, I do agree with Joel that Tana is looking more broken down these days, but having just watched a uh, Hardy Boys match last night, I can I can say that he is not fully broken down. Uh, he looked he was able to you know be carryable uh, in a couple of high profile singles matches. He had a, what I have as a four star against Okada back at Battle in the Valley. And I think he also had a four-star on my card uh, against Mike Bailey at the uh, multiverse of whatever the hell Impact called the crossover show this year. The Dollar Store Forbidden, or Dollar Store uh, Forbidden Door. Um, but, you know, Forbidden I mean... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think he... Th- MJF's great. I, I really do think MJF is a fantastic in-ring performer. Uh, he doesn't get enough credit for that because so, of his, so much of his character is about not wrestling. Uh, but he, when he does wrestle, he has these high-profile matches that are excellent, you know. And yes, they've come against Brian Danielson and Adam Cole and uh, you know the other pillars who are good in the ring, if you know, ignoring their other flaws. But I, I fully believe that he could at least get a four-star match out of what Tanahashi is in 2023. Um, you know, so I think you know. I think this will be fun. I think there will be a good bit of shtick, and I think that works to Tana's strengths. I mean, Tana right now his biggest strengths are his charisma. You know, maybe he doesn't have knees anymore, but he still has the ability to come across as a star, and opposite M- and and a- as a total babyface too. So opposite MJF, who is just you know a complete terrible heel in character, um, this could be a pretty fun match. You know, it'll be. Uh, a middle of the card kind of thing. It'll be maybe 15 minutes tops, but it'll be fun, I think. Yeah, I, I think fun is the right word here, especially if you love old school territory wrestling, which it, it wouldn't shock me if this match uh, was basically a carbon copy of something that for, from like the late 1970s, early 1980s, especially from like Mid-South, because we know how much Tony Khan really likes Mid-South and he and MJF kind of have that connection with uh, old school wrestling. Uh, but now we're we're at the meat of the card, guys. And these two matches are, you can call them dream matches. You can call them pretty much any superlative you want. And I think it would fit. And we'll start here. Kenny Omega defending the IWGP US title. Yes, the IWGP US title does exist, even though you thought it disappeared. Um, he will be defending it against Will Ospreay, whom he beat for the title at Wrestle Kingdom on January the 4th. This is fascinating for a multitude of reasons. And it all starts with Will Ospreay's post-match promo at the Tokyo Dome, where he said, if he can't beat Kenny Omega within the span of a calendar year, he will quit. And how they end up continuing or concluding this story, I think is going to be really, really interesting. We're in Kenny's home country of Canada. Obviously Toronto is hours away from Winnipeg, but it is still his home country of Canada and Osprey has been uh, really ripping on Canada for being uh, subpar in comparison to other places he's wrestled. And he said on dynamite at England and Japan, as far as like more prestigious places. So 
having all those elements and then you also have the all-in show at Wembley coming up and then a potential Tokyo Dome matchup as well. It's very interesting to see how they're going to go with this story. They they could have Osprey win here and then they could uh, finish it up with a, a trilogy match down the line, but there is a lot of potential here. And Joel, I'll start with you. When you take a look at, um, at this match, what are your biggest takeaways going in? Because there is a lot of, of major question marks as to where this can go. Well, I watched Dynamite, and as soon as they had that little segment with Don Callis coming out and exchanging words with Osprey and talking about lending his private security team, then to me, that's a, a massive flashing red light that we're unlikely to get a clean finish in this match. I don't know if it's going to be DQ or count out or some sort of interference, but it feels like some sort of dusty finish where I don't really know who wins, to be honest, but I I think a rubber match is an inevitability, uh, quite possibly at Wembley Stadium. So, yeah, I think there's going to be um, a lot of interference in this one. And I don't really mind who wins, to be honest. This is the thing, when we're getting to the the dream matches uh, at the top of this card, Again, like I said, I just want to see cool matches with big stars. And I don't think, uh, well, I can only speak for myself, but I'm not going to be like gnashing my teeth and and throwing the whole relationship in the bin if Omega wins this again. But I think the most likely outcome is an Osprey win with some sort of interference. That That's an interesting because when I saw the Don Callis inclusion, I... I don't think that this is the first time that they've interacted. And Fred, you can you can kind of correct me on that because I believe it happened on a dynamite or a rampage where they had uh, some form of interaction. Maybe it was social media, but I, I think we've had this conversation before about the potential of Callus and Osprey. Yeah, I uh, I don't know if it was an, a direct interaction. I do know that uh, Callus has always been putting over. Um, He's always put over uh, Osprey as I get tongue-tied, sorry, uh, on commentary very strong, like for ever since he first came into AEW um, for his guest appearances. So, you know, I think this is a logical conclusion of what we're going to be seeing um, with these two. And, um, yeah, I mean, it should be... uh, I do agree with Joel. I do agree that we are not going to see a clean finish. That's just not something that's going to happen this time around. Um, there will be some kind of, I, and I don't think it's going to be a win for uh, Osprey either. So I, I, what I imagine is it's going to be maybe some botched interference uh, where Osprey ends up mad at uh, at uh, Callus. But yeah. Um, I, I mean, this match should be amazing. Uh, I imagine this will probably be more of a setup for the, the you know, the a third match down the line, which means that this will, big air quotes, only be uh, like four and three quarter stars. Such a disappointment. Um, rather than maybe the greatest match I've ever seen. And, uh, but yeah, I'm very excited for this. I can't wait until it happens. I I'm very intrigued to see if they, like, Obviously, when you have the rest of these matches, having a uh, having a non-clean finish uh, a, like that, I don't think necessarily would be the worst thing in the world. But when you have a card that's 
I mean, you have a really good card, but this is essentially a two match card and having one of those to have like a messy finish, a dusty finish, um, interference, um, kind of impacting the finish. I, AW has never been afraid to use interference. And we all know that it's kind of become a meme that there's interference in nearly every single match. But when it comes to finishing a feud or like having a really big match in a feud, they don't do that that often. It's more of like on a week to week basis, they use interference as heat to continue stories going. I wonder how Tony Khan and Gato are comfortable having interference in one of the two biggest matches arguably of the calendar year. Um, uh, it, I'm, I'm not sold on it, but I don't necessarily think it's an impossibility. It just, it feels like a weird spot for it, even though it makes sense within the story. It's uh, my brain's just fried. I, I don't know, <laughs> but you, I hope you understand where I'm coming from. Well, I, I would say if you're thinking, hmm, is Gedo really going to allow interference? In, <laughs> you know, top, top of the cards. Like, did you see the evil title reign? <laughs> but the evil title reign aside, um, I, I yeah, you're 100 percent right. He's never been afraid of it, but it to me this feels different than like, hey, this is like destruction or King of Pro Wrestling. Like, this is. This is an inner promotional show where you're trying to put your absolute best foot forward in a lot of these elements. And that's where I, I, I kind of have the real hesitation and it's, we all know Gato loves Memphis and gotta get that heat, baby. Yeah. And I, I get it, but it's, I, I don't know. I'm just having trepidation here with having one of these top two matches have interference, mar the finish. I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong again. And that's part of the nature of this, but it's, it's an intriguing element to add to this whole picture. Yeah. I wouldn't be all that surprised at all, to be honest. Uh, I think it's uh it, inevitability is strong, but I mean, it's well within the wheelhouse of both uh, Gato and Tony Khan to do this. So I, I wouldn't even blink to be honest. Yeah, this is gonna be fascinating. Are are we all in the ballpark of we think Kenny Omega is gonna end up winning this in some way, shape, or form? I think so. Joel, how about you? Uh, my pick was Osprey to win through some sort of interference, but okay. I, I'm I'm on the fence with that one. It's not something I'm gonna uh, die for. I think it, it's a bit of a coin toss to be honest at the moment. I think when all said and done, I think Osprey is. Uh, winning the US title, whether it's here or if there's a rubber match down the line, because uh, it needs to make its way back to New Japan at some point. And if it's not Osprey that's going to beat Omega for it, then who else is it going to be? So I just think to for, for the sake of getting that title away from Kenny Omega, uh, it's going to happen sooner or later. Yeah, and I don't think New Japan necessarily needs the title, but I really do think it should be featured a little more than it has. It has pretty much been on ice other than the Jeff Cobb match since uh, January the 5th when uh, Omega teamed with Okada at uh, New Year's Dash. But one question I'll have here, and as we transition to what Excalibur, I think, referred to 10 times on Wednesday night as the main event, Brian Danielson uh, versus Kazuchika Okada is... Which match closes the show? 
are we certain it's going to be Okada and Danielson? Um, I think Omega and Osprey, especially with the Canadian connection with Omega, could have has just as much of a claim. Um, Joel, I'll start with you, then we'll kick it to Fred. Which match actually goes on last here? Uh, I think it's Okada Danielson. I've seen it doing the rounds that this is the main event. I can't remember where that was actually announced. Did, was it did Excalibur actually said that on the show? That is this officially the main event? He kept referencing main event, but we also knew that the technical main event of Dynamite was Danielson calling out Okada. So I'm I don't know how much of that intertwines, but it it wouldn't shock me if this was the main event and not Omega Osprey, but he did. He used the word main event a lot. Uh, for me, if I was booking it, I think I would have Okada Danielson as the main event, especially if Osprey Omega ends the way I think it will. I think you want to end your show with the biggest dream match with a clean finish. And I think it's this one. I don't know if this is going to be the kind of thing where with Forbidden Door, the company sort of take it in turns to have uh, their guys going over in the main event. But if you subscribe into that logic, then yeah, it would make sense for Okada to win this one. Uh, I don't think it would hurt Danielson at all. And I think it, I, I don't think New Japan would be uh, willingly offering up Okada to be losing going into the grade one climax, where I think Okada's probably going to be one of the favorites. So, um, however, that being said, I don't really mind who wins or loses. As I said before, like, if Danielson wins this, I'm not going to be tearing my hair out and crying and, and shitting my diaper about the, the New Japan guy losing. Like I said, I'm just excited to see uh, an honest-to-God dream match that, fingers crossed, stays on the card. No one gets hurt. Um, and I'm just looking forward to it, to be honest. I don't really care who wins. Fred, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it really matters that much. This is more uh, about being able to put on the match and the kind of celebration of wrestling that comes with it. Um but yeah, I think uh, I think it's pretty clear to me that Okada is going to end up winning it, and uh, I I can't even really envision Danielson uh, picking up the W. Uh, it just seems maybe there's some shenanigans along the way again. Look at the bookers, but I, I think it's pretty clear that uh, Okada will pick up the W. I, I'm very fascinated about this match and. Let me tell you, when Okada came out on Dynamite right before Danielson was about to stomp Ishii's face in, when that coin dropped, that pop, that, like, that's a megastar pop. That is what people think Roman Reigns gets. But that that was a that was a huge star pop. And I I find it fascinating, and I'll actually ask this because Diego Garcia has a two-part question, but I'll go to the second part right now. Um, would, you, would you give Okada the AW World Championship when New Japan starts to cycle him down? But I think the real question is, is Okada going to be cycled down anytime in the next 15 years? Like, uh, other than like, hey, we're going to cycle you down because we're going to make you balloon Okada to give Omega a run, and then um, we're going to give Jay White some shine. Like, it's the the whole aspect of Okada is just fascinating because he's he's what 33 five 35 he's 35 and he's he's been wrestling at the highest level for like 12 years mm-hmm. he's just so incredible and 
I'm I'm fascinated to kind of see how his his arc projects and this match, especially with Danielson. This is going to be like I I don't get a lot of like goosebumps or like get like super amped up or like emotional with with wrestling. I I love wrestling, but I'm I become more stoic as I I become an analyst in this space and especially in football. Um, but I was standing up, I was pacing, I had goosebumps. That that felt special in a lot of ways. Um, and I'll, I'll answer Diego's question. I think if, if you have an opportunity to put the belt on Okada at any point in time with your partnership in New Japan, you do it because it's only going to make you stronger. It's only going to make the belt stronger and it's going to make Okada. Uh, hey, yeah, he could do a belt collector gimmick like Omega because he is, he's arguably the, the greatest wrestler of all time. And th- that's what really makes this match so fascinating for me. Oh, I think we've all forgotten as well um, that Okada is holding one of the most prestigious titles there is, the never openweight six-man championship. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's no way he can he can be losing this one. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you talked about... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're talking about Okada's future. I mean, this gimmick change he's done now has pretty much set the table for him to be doing that for the next 10, maybe even 15 years. So uh, I don't think he has moved away permanently from the title scene. Obviously, they're going to be going back to him from time to time to be the world champion, but they can really take their time with him. And his role now is to get over people like Shota, uh, Ren Narita, Suji, Kiyomir, if he's sticking around, maybe even a gay kid, he is there to be the guy to feud with the, the young up-and-comers and, you know, to be that, that final test for them, uh, as he's doing for Osprey at the moment. And... I just think it's a, a really refreshing change of pace for him. And case in point, my favorite bit of dynamite, that little smile on Okada's face when he picked up, uh, uh, what's his name, Wheeler Utah, and was like, oh, here's another uh, young wrestler for me to bully and, and merciless. So, <laughs> that was incredible. So he, he was in his element there. So yeah, it's uh, a, a great change, change of scenery for Okada. And yeah, the belt will come back to him from time to time. I don't see Tony Khan ever putting his world title on someone who is not under contract to him. Um, mm-hmm. That would really surprise me. Do I think it would be a mistake? Absolutely not. I think it would be really cool if uh, more companies would take risks like that and belt up outsiders. It just makes it things more fresh and interesting. I think the the best part about Okada, um, Rainmaker, Weir, Yuta in the middle of the ring, was after Dynamite went off the air, Yuta tweeted, does this mean I'm out of chaos now? And I thought that was just just a really nice piece of work and working. Just it, it, the little things are what gets me in, in wrestling. It's just it's there's so much continuity between these two companies with a lot of different elements, and that's that's one of them because uh, Yuta obviously uh, with the best friends, and then he went over for the best of the Super Juniors in 2022. Like d- those little things just make things so much better, and I greatly appreciate how these two companies pay attention to those details. There's absolutely no chance that Okada gets downcycled before 2033. Unless he <laughs> wants to be. I mean, unless he wants to be, sure. But, like, just in terms of talent, like, there's no way. Even when uh, the, the you know, this class of Young Lions gets established as main eventers, and I'm a full-blown Yodosuji believer now. Um, yeah, you're a blaster of genes. I, I will blast. Um, watch out. Uh, I mean, there's just... No way. I mean, Okada is the New Japan Golden Boy, and he's like in that rarefied air of like, 
A plus plus tier, like S tier, S plus tier, whatever nerdy terminology you want to use in New Japan kayfabe. And I just can't, barring like a complete collapse of his body at the age of 40, which seems very unlikely, um, I think he's just going to be a major force in that company for a long time and unlikely to uh, even have the ability to go spend six months in America with AEW unless he requested specifically. Well, I mean, Japan just did get a pop-up in and out burger. So if there was a pop-up one, maybe they'll get a permanent one, and then it'll be maybe. a lot less appealing for him to come over to the States. Obviously, that's that's half me and half not because he does love his in and out. But let's let's go with the premise that Okada wins, and I'm, I want to start with Joel and then go over to Fred. What's next for Brian Danielson as far as – because obviously he spoke at length about – him wanting to do all these dream matches and especially like he wants to go down to uh, Mexico and, and wrestle blue Panther at in arena Mexico. Um, does he, are there still more dream matches for him to uh, have in new Japan? Um, does this potentially mean that they could have a rematch at a, at a bigger show in Japan and Danielson would go over there? I, I, I th- I'm very intrigued to see what it would be next for him in terms of the relationship with these two companies. There's been a lot of clamour from uh, New Japan fans and AW fans as well to see Danielson in the G1. Personally, I kind of like this idea of having his big showcase singles matches against top New Japan guys as like a little treat that you get once and twice a year. So there's so many guys he could have matches with. Uh, I suppose Zack Sabre Jr. is the next obvious one. But honestly, like you throw a dartboard at uh, throw, throw a dart at a dartboard with all the New Japan roster in there and I would put down good money to see them wrestle Brian Danielson so I don't think there's uh, any chance of us uh, running out of potential dream match dream crossover dream matches for him in the future just any of them sign me up because he's brilliant do you think he could have the Chris Jericho arc like when Jericho came to the company first it was Omega then it was Naito and then he kind of ran the gauntlet uh, through some of like the, the big top stars. And obviously he got the win against Tanahashi in the Tokyo Dome. Uh, do you think that could be the arc for Danielson here? Yeah, why not? I mean, I think the next step for him would be to wrestle on a big show in Japan. Because I think the the reception that just the Danielson video package got at Dominion was really tremendous. And I think the Japanese fans would love to see him whether wrestling in Tokyo or Osaka, it could be uh, a Dominion, it could be a Wrestle Kingdom, whatever. You, you take your pick, really. He could just fly in anytime he likes, wrestle anyone he wants, and I think that does um, big numbers in, in front of a Japanese crowd. Fred, what do you think? Yeah, I think there's a couple of dream matches left. Uh, I think uh, Naito. I think Sabre is a pretty obvious one from the technical aspect, and... Uh, we nearly got it last year until it got ruined. Um, and uh, Tanahashi, I think, still qualifies. Um, that may be rapidly aging out, but we'll see um, how how, my, how healthy Tanahashi can stay because uh, it's going down pretty fast. Um, uh, but in Osprey, of course, I mean Danielson Osprey would be an amazing experience. Uh, short of that, I mean, I think. I don't think we're ever going to get Danielson in the G1. Um, it just seems really unlikely that Tony Khan will give up Danielson for a whole month, um, even though he could really benefit from that month away in terms of AEW storylines. 
But also, I think there's some legitimate health concerns uh, about Danielson being able to go through a G1 because, you know, I don't know that he'll really be willing to put the brakes on and uh, kind of make his way, you know, through uh, seven matches or however many matches. Um, and, and, yeah, uh, Joel brought this up. Uh, but, yeah, they uh, do now have five hours of television to fill a week. And Danielson is a very valuable uh, member of that um, member of the roster for doing that, I should say. So uh, I want to push back a little bit here, Fred, with the the you don't think Danielson could um, uh, survive a G one. I'm not I, saying he couldn't. I just think there's enough concerns. I mean, look at how he's been bubble wrapped for this Forbidden mm-hmm. Door. Yeah, I don't think he's worked a, a match in uh, weeks now. Double um, or nothing was Anarchy in the Arena was the last one. Uh, yeah. But I, I want to point this out because, uh, and it's something that Joel can expand on, the format of the G1 is significantly different than the G1 that a lot of us have pictured. Like, uh, your nine matches, you're basically going every other, every third day. And on your off days, uh, when there are shows, you're doing uh, multi-man tags to set up the next night. So it was a real gruel, grueling grind. This year's a little different because it's four blocks, you're go you're only wrestling seven singles matches and you're not doing those multi-man tags. So it's and with the new 20 minute time limit, in theory, if Danielson was going to survive a G1, this would be the easiest type of G1 that he would be able to survive, considering what the schedule is. It's less grueling, it's less demanding, there's more time off. And I I think if you're gonna do it, the 32 man field is the way to do it. Yes, but I think we're going to see a uh, Eddie Kingston is going to be a big test of this mm-hmm. because there's a lot of jokes uh, in the writers' slacks. Yeah, about how he's going to die. Uh, <laughs> basically, his body parts are going to fly off uh, like a broken GI Joe from uh, 1987. Uh, he's going to have like one arm in one corner of the ring and a leg in the other. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think that's a bit overblown, but also it's not that far off and. You know, if Eddie get if Eddie gets hurt, you know, I think that's going to be a major um, major thing to consider for future G ones about AEW sending people over. Um, when the field was announced, you know, I saw Eddie Kingston's name first, and my thought was, well, that's a good first guy out of two for AEW to send over. Let's see who the second guy is, and then there was a second guy. It was just Eddie, and I love Eddie, but you know, um, I do wish that there was more representation. I'd love to see more. AW involvement in the G1. Um, but we got what we got. Yeah. I would also say that I think that the point about the smaller blocks doesn't really apply if it's someone who's going to go deep in the tournament. Because if they're going to make the quarterfinals, then that's eight matches. They're making the semis, that's nine. So, uh, and, and again, for the multi man tags, during a regular 20 man G1, those guys in the blocks were not exactly. Uh, oh. busting their guts to uh, mm-hmm. you know deliver huge work rate performances in those those preview multi man matches. Total I think more jobs. to the point with Danielson, like as you said, like Tony Khan is not going to let him disappear for a month when he's got five hours of TV to fill each week. And secondly, I think it would just be a, a waste. It would be leaving money on the table to have all these Brian Danielson singles matches. Uh, it would you know you're touring around Japan and a lot of these venues. I just think it would be a waste. I think I'd rather save it for special occasions uh, rather than, you know, burning off a load of singles matches within the space of a month where 
there's not going to be the crowds or the arenas to do it justice. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on there. It, it would be great to see him in a G1, but maybe it would be smarter to have him do a New Japan Cup where you're only going to burn off like two, three, or maybe four. And, and you, you don't even have to burn off any major ones and he can still do a tournament. It could be an, that in theory could be a nice uh, like a consolation prize for those who really want him in a G1 and maybe it can get, get Danielson's itch enough, but we'll see. Um, last question for you guys here on this Forbidden Door card, and then we'll uh, blow through some news and get out of here. Do we know the commentators? Um, we obviously Kevin Kelly, and we're going to mention collision here in a little bit is the new lead commentator for collision, but that is not going to in theory impact any of his uh, work with Japan. It may uh, impact his ability to be in Japan sometimes, but he's going to be doing, excuse me, both for the time being last year was what Kevin Kelly Excalibur. And I believe it was Taz. Um, yeah. Are we going to see the same group of guys here this year as well? I think it's going to be like last year where they actually cycled six different guys through. They had Caprice Coleman out there for a bit and Tony Schiavone and Jim Ross. Um, I, I just don't think it's going to be like you'll have probably two core guys for the night and then you'll cycle in everybody so they get their little guest appearances in. Um, Pre-show was Excalibur, Taz, and Kevin Kelly. Uh, and I would not be shocked if that was uh, the core group this year. And, you know, on top of all that, uh, Jim Ross is, I think, taking time off, though. Who knows how much time he meant when he said he was going away for a little bit with Jim Ross. That could have been like 24 hours. And he'd be like, all right, my eyes still black, but I'm ready to go. And, you know, back to the commentary desk because I can't miss shows. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that's just very uh, it, it's going to be a bunch of guests. I don't think we're going to have Ring of Honor representation this time, although I would love to have Caprice or Ian on the call for a bit. Uh, but there I do think with the pure title there, that's there true. Is that chance, but it's not on the line. And I, I think that's usually if there's the ROH title on the line, then that's when they bring people in um, from ROH to call it. Uh, but I do think you're going to get just about the whole complement of announcers uh, from the regular guys. Would I be shocked by like daddy magic popping on for the Jericho match? No, I would not. Uh, Callus could pop in. You could have uh God, I mean, there's a bunch of possibilities, but I think it'll probably be that same core. Yeah, Joel, can yeah, you? If we're, not, if we're not flying in Gino Gambino for Donkey oh, Chunky, then okay, I'm okay. put my foot through the TV and I, send I, Tony Carmichael. I was just going to say, can you make some calls and get Gino Gambino over here? Because I would love to see his <laughs> interactions with Taz. I think that's that oh, a fun commentary table. Joel, are you anti Gino Gambino? No, I, I love him. I think he's great. Okay, good, good. That was, that was uh, peak New Japan booth when I think him, Chris, and Gino is a, a really fun combination. Yeah, okay. I, I wasn't sure with the foot through the TV comment. Uh, I love Gino Gambino. I love the Doki Choki. I love when he is able to come in and do a show. He's a great, uh, great little twist on the classic 80s heel commentator thing that's kind of been run into the mud by this point, but I, I think he really is able to do it well and interestingly. And uh, I, I love Gino Gambino. So if we do get Gino Gambino for even just one match, it'll all be worth it. Oh yeah. The, the, the Doki Choki line is just, it's, it's iconic for me. Um, I agree. Uh, any final thoughts on the show gentlemen before we uh, get some news and get out of here? Uh, you know, obviously, it's funny that we've spent all this time talking about Forbidden Door, and, you know, 
the the thing that was talked about for seemingly almost an entire year of uh, CM Punk's eventual return. We're just kind of like, yeah, it happened. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, with all this drama, there's still kind of drama surrounding it just because he is CM Punk and Brawl Out happened and everything. I mean, CM Punk's back and he's uh, ready to go. And uh, we'll see for how long. I feel like I should get one of those. It's been X days since uh, last injury only updated to last drama for AEW. Just have it ready for the show. Um, I, obviously, it'd be great if everything went well, but. You know, I mean, fuck, look at the Kenta match that didn't happen, you know, and just, mm-hmm. you know, we don't know exactly why, you know, there's a lot of rumors. I think Joel probably knows better than I do. I'm just a schmuck with a Twitter account I don't use. Um, but, I mean, it, it's clear to me that CM Punk gets to have his way to a certain extent, and uh, uh, unique to CM Punk in this day and age, he has a certain perception on how that way should go, I guess, would be my very polite way of putting it. Yeah, I think there was a real danger that the whole buzz for Forbidden Door was about to get swallowed up by arguments over who pulled out of the Kenta Punk match first. So I'm yeah. really glad that they had a, a strong dynamite to get it back on track That uh, and both sets of fans excited. And um, I'm just lamenting the fact that because this show will be on Sunday night in North America, which would make it Monday morning for me. And I've uh, foolishly signed up to be teaching summer camp. So I'm supposed to be teaching while this show's going on. So I'm going to have to think of some way to uh, uh, finesse my way into being able to watch it live because it's, you know, it feels like one of those events. I don't want to watch it after the fact. I want to be watching it live and, you know, get involved in all the, the, the live chat, whether that's on the Discord or the Slack or Twitter, it just it feels like a, an event that you know you want to be a part of. Yeah, well, I, I think the important thing is, Joel. Uh, you said this is a science camp, right? Physics, man. Force equals mass times acceleration. Uh, you can. <laughs> it's time for the old. Uh, uh, shoot, I blanked. Uh, Art Donovan, how much does this fellow weigh? And then you can start calculating. You know. So fun fact, when I was in high school, I, I was in AP physics. And um, at the end of the year, we got to go to Valley Fair, which is like the the amusement park. So kind of think Six Flags. It's it's kind of the same gimmick. And while we were there, we had to actually calculate like some of the, like those equations like with rides. So we would go up to like on the wild thing, which is a 200 foot drop roller coaster and find out and do calculations and it was fascinating um and there you go that's just just ask uh how much force does ishii um chop with that that's what you're gonna have to get everybody to figure out yeah how hard does ishii have to chop someone to generate chernikov radiation yeah well uh joel um i greatly appreciate and i know fred does as well you joining us here today and it, this is it's been a lot of fun to finally get a chance to chat with you even though we've been that chatting online for years now um that your work with the super jcast and you and damon who i wish we could have gotten here today but i uh, apparently lost his number over the the last few years um just oh, no damon damon pulled creative control he's done a punk ah oh, of, of course uh, D- damon would would do a cm punk uh but it, it's it's been a blast talking with you and um it's i i gotta say your work with the super j cast is um is something i i really admire and try to 
incorporate with uh, all of my doings in the world of media because you you guys present such a a fun product. You while while you take yourselves very seriously, you don't take yourselves seriously at all, and it's it's just a a special chemistry that you guys have, and it's been a blast chatting with you today. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. The, the, the day you sent me those Buffalo Wild Wing sauces, you got a friend for life. So anytime you want me on the show, you just tell me when and where, and I will be here with a smile on my face. Well, uh, hopefully with you saying you're moving to the UK, I, I I don't think there's a beat-ups there yet. They have ones in Qatar and Saudi Arabia, but I don't think they have them in, in Europe yet. I think you can get the sauces there, and if you can't, it'll be a lot cheaper for me to send them to you than China. So you let me know, and I'll get you the hookup anytime my guys love it thank you so much joel thanks for coming on had a lot of fun thank you fred all right take care guys take See care you later. Joel. music it's not just part of our daily lives it's part of our wrestling fandom as well and it has been for decades That's where this show comes in, Music of the Mat, the podcast devoted exclusively to the music of pro wrestling, hosted by Andrew Rich. Hey, that's me. Each episode delivers a different topic with a variety of great guests, fun conversations, musical analysis, and of course, a heartfelt pun or two. New episodes drop every other Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. Check out Music of the Mat only on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network.